Thank you, choir. What a declaration of faithfulness. My lips will praise you. Amen. Friends, we are on the road through Lent going to Easter. On these 40 days of Lent, we've been walking through a sermon series called How to Repent. Repentance, as you may remember, is the act of turning around, of of changing your mind, maybe of falling on your bike and doing something differently the next time you go out on your bike, or of putting a band-aid on it. It can be difficult to repent. When you do so, some people may call you a hypocrite. Some people may call you a flip-flopper because you're doing something different than you did before. I read once, though, that sometimes a hypocrite is nothing more than a person in the process of changing. And I think that's really true. And when we repent, I want us to keep that in mind and not be worried about feeling like a hypocrite, trying to be faithful with who we are now. Two weeks ago, we explored how when good things become God things, that's a bad thing. Last week, we focused on how God isn't waiting to punish us, but longs to forgive us. And by the way, if you uh, are wanting to hear any former sermon, either in this sermon series or prior, we have finally uploaded all of these sermons since I think midsummer onto a podcast. If that's sort of your speed, if you'd like to listen as you drive or as you commute, you can just search for Sunnyside Church in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever you want. That's the end of this sponsorship for today. Um, uh, but, uh, but wanted to let you know that uh, before we got going on this week's sermon. And this week, uh, we're returning to the Gospel of Luke, reading from chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. You can find this in your bulletins or on page 76 of the Red Pew Bibles, if you'd like to look around and see the context. This is Luke 13, verses 1 through 9. Listen now for God's word to you. At that very time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. And then Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years, I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree. Still, I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? But the gardener replied, sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we long to worship and serve you more. Send your spirit upon our hearts. Send your spirit upon me to transform my words into your words of hope. Thank you for your word in scripture and for your word made flesh in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 
when we were going through our series on Job back in, what was that, October? I think so. I remember Pastor Susan mentioning in one of her sermons that God's response to Job's suffering wasn't the type of response they teach you in a class on pastoral care. Instead of listening to Job's complaint and offering solace, God listens to Job's complaint in response, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Not really a pastorally sensitive response. And I think that we have something similar in this passage. Word is brought to Jesus about this horrific event that played out in the temple in Jerusalem. You have some pilgrims going to bring sacrifices And the Roman governor Pilate has them slaughtered in their very act of worship. Not only was this murder, this was, this would meet our modern definition of a hate crime of something that was done against these people merely because of their ethnicity or religion. And Jesus offers a response that at least raises my eyebrows. At face value, it's borderline offensive. Instead of hearing the concern and responding, he says, yeah, unless you repent, the same thing's going to happen to you. As I think it was uh, Jordan Turner Connell who said when she was preaching, the word of the Lord, ouch. What's going on with this text? Well, there's some behind-the-scenes information that's necessary, I think, to make some sense out of Jesus' response to the people who told him about this religiously motivated slaughter of the Galileans. First, there was a sort of prosperity gospel-esque deal going on at the time. Um, uh, Let me break that down a little bit. In our context, the prosperity gospel in 21st century America, it's one way of reading scripture that argues that all those who truly have faith in God are going to experience good health and lots of wealth. They're going to experience prosperity. Now, of course, anyone who's had the privilege to walk alongside a deeply faithful follower of Jesus Christ has seen that this is not the case always, right? Those of you who are deeply faithful in your walk with Christ have faced hardship. Some have faced terrible hardship. Our faith, our good works, they don't have any guaranteed return on investment, if you will. Not on this side of heaven, anyway. Put another way, followers of Jesus aren't immune to suffering, nor can we anticipate our lives getting easier the more faithful we are. But in Jesus' time, there was this belief that if you were, for example, born blind, you or your parents must have sinned for you to deserve that. Jesus has a whole interaction with his disciples around this in John chapter 9, if you'd like to read more on that. So there was this first century idea of prosperity gospel. If you're faithful, good things will happen. Almost a karmic justice type faith. Secondly, the Galilean region was seen as the first century equivalent of flyover country, perhaps you could say. All the civic and religious elites lived in or around Jerusalem because that's where the action was at. The religious practices of the Galileans were seen as somewhat backwards or even superstitious, particularly in contrast to the high church of Jerusalem. Now, we don't know who these people were who told Jesus about this horrific event of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled in with their sacrifices, but we do know that reacting to this news might have put Jesus in sort of a no-win situation. 
Jesus could either react as the person who hailed from Galilee, the person who was taking on the side of Galilee against Jerusalem and, you know, suffering righteous indignation or the side of Galilee against Rome and put out this righteous indignation against Pilate. Jesus could also react in keeping to the prosperity gospel-like beliefs of the time, suggesting maybe they deserved what they got. This is why Jesus brings up this tower falling on 18 people at Siloam, which is a region of Jerusalem, is that um, he was trying to compare and contrast. Are, are these any worse sinners? You know, this prosperity gospel type belief you have, does it hold water? There's no real obvious middle ground, I don't think, for Jesus to approach this with. When he reacts to this news, either way, he's going to get pulled to one side or the other. I wonder if you've felt a similar pull before, trying to navigate outrageous, horrific situations when it seems like everyone you know is lining up behind one way of thinking or behind another way of thinking, and they expect you to join them when you really don't have any idea what you believe. We've seen this in response, in our responses to COVID. We've seen this in our political discourse. We even see this in our churches as we struggle to respond to all that happens in this world, this polarization pull to one side or the other with little room to navigate in between. I think that one of the mistakes we are so good at making as we try and navigate all of our modern day problems is finding all of the problems that occur out there. We're so good at doing this that we sometimes blind ourselves to the problems that take place in here. I used to meet with a group of retired churchmen for breakfast every week. It was um, one of the, the high points of my week. If you've never gotten to have Panera bread with a bunch of retired church guys, some of whom are kind of grumpy, um, no offense to all of you church guys out there. <laughs> It's, it's really quite fun. We talked about everything under the sun, local news, what was going on with our families, who we could be praying for. Our joke when we left each morning was, well, we solved all the world's problems. It's a pity we're going to forget all of those solutions in a week and have to do it all over. Now, everyone knew this was a joke. But it points to an error we so frequently end up making that we, we focus so much on the world's problems, the speck in someone else's eye that we fail to deal with the plank in our own. Before we solve the problems of the world, before we speak to the Galileans whose blood was mingled in with their sacrifices, we need to deal with our own sin, our own brokenness, our own failures, this is what the season of Lent is for. And nobody is too far gone for repentance to start bearing fruit in their lives. I think this is the error Jesus is pointing out in those who told him about Pilate's brutal treatment of the Galileans. Instead of looking at those people or, or the events in the news and passing judgment about them, we're called to look at the person in the mirror Yes, there is suffering going on in the world. We're right to be concerned about it. But we also need to find a way to clean up the mess in our front yard before we tell our neighbors how to clean up their yards. 
Kenneth Bailey, who's a scholar focused on Middle Eastern New Testament studies, he puts it this way in a book that he wrote called Through Peasant Eyes. He puts these words in Jesus' mouth. You want me to condemn evil in Pilate. I'm not talking to Pilate. He's not here. I'm talking to you. Evil forces are at work in your movement that are going to destroy you, pilot or no pilot. You must repent or all of you will be destroyed by these forces. It's this idea that Jesus uses as he pivots into a parable that he offers, discussing a fig tree in a vineyard. Again, there's a couple things going on behind the scenes here that's going to be helpful for us to uh, begin making sense of Jesus' parable. The vineyard is a common analogy for Israel throughout all the New Testament prophets, specifically in Isaiah chapter 5. You can read about this. And fig trees are regularly found in vineyards in the Old Testament. There's the oft-quoted line from Micah 4, which made its way into George Washington's farewell address. But they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid. It's this idea of the vine and the fig tree together that was common to the culture. And the failure of the fig tree to bear fruit corresponds to the failure of Israel to be a society of justice and mercy and peace. While Israel bears no fruit, they're in no position to condemn Rome. And while they've not borne any fruit for some time now, nobody, not even Israel, is too far gone for repentance, for a changing of the heart, for a changing of the mind to begin to bear fruit. There's this discussion that takes place between the owner of the vineyard and the gardener. And I think this shows us a tension that continually takes place in God's very heart. God's justice on the one hand demands the fig tree be replaced by a plant that will bear fruit. A plant that's going to make good use of the space in the vineyard. But God's mercy demands that the fig tree be given another chance. And not just another chance, mind you. God's mercy demands that everything be done for this fig tree, for the roots to be dug, the ground to be aerated, manure to be spread. God's mercy is unwilling to believe the tree is too far gone, that there may be a change of behavior that could get it to bear fruit. Now, there's, there is a lot more going on with this parable we could try and parse. We could maybe argue that the fig tree should probably be a metaphor for Israel's leaders. We could explore the, the different symbolic meanings that these three years that the tree hasn't borne fruit could have. We could investigate all the various ways the children of Israel would need to repent. And academically, all of these would be really interesting avenues of study. But these questions risk depersonalizing the parable, holding it at arm's length from us so that we are not pierced to the heart by what it says. Put another way, we are not talking to the Israelites of Jesus' time. They are not here. We are talking to ourselves and Jesus has words to say to us. So in what ways is God calling the worshiping community of Sunnyside Presbyterian Church to repent? In what ways is God calling us to change our behavior and our hearts and our minds individually and as a community? 
the work of digging up roots, of aerating the ground, of spreading manure, this is dirty, stinky work. And I want to take note that the work that's done here is done for an unproductive tree, a tree that has borne no fruit. So how do we do this? Well, I want to, I want to start this idea with a story. During World War II, researchers at the Center for Naval Analysis wanted to figure out how to better protect the bombers that were being shot down over Germany. So they collected information after each mission. They logged where all the bombers that returned had been damaged, had gotten shot at. And, and they graphed this damage. And the graphing showed a really clear pattern. The bombers had been hit on the wings um, and, and then kind of on the, on the upper body, but not at the tail and not at the cockpit and not at the engines. So these researchers were thinking, okay, well, we need to reinforce those areas where the bombers were damaged. Makes sense. But before the planes could be re-armored, there's this Hungarian mathematician. It's always the mathematicians, by the way, isn't it? His name's Abraham Wald, and he comes in and he identifies a flaw in the analysis. The researchers were only counting the planes that returned. Where was the damage located on the planes that were shot down? Wald suggested that these planes were probably the ones that were hit in the engines. These planes were probably the ones that were hit in the cockpits, in the tail. And that the places where no surviving plane had taken damage, that these were the places that they needed to rearmor and reinforce the planes. When I heard that story first, my brain almost exploded. It was like, it was a completely new way of looking at things because we all carry sort of a survivor bias with us. We only hear about the problems that wound. We don't regularly hear about the problems that destroy because there aren't witnesses to those problems that destroy. So as we explore areas, as we explore the places where we need to aerate the roots, we need to spread the manure, as we do the difficult work of assessing the damage the pandemic has done to ourselves, to our congregation, to our society, don't neglect the areas that seem to have no damage. Don't tend only to the fig trees that produce sort of so-so fruit. Find the places that have stopped bearing fruit. Find the places where maybe there was something you loved to do and you haven't done it in the last two years, in the last five years. Nobody is too far gone. No practice is too far gone for a change of heart to begin bearing fruit. For our community, one concrete way we can do this is to reach out to those who we know and who we love who are absent. There are many members and guests that we've not seen in worship in months or in years. Some of these folks have chosen to worship from home for reasons of safety or health. I would assume that they would welcome a phone call, would welcome an extension of care. Others have undergone life changes over the past two years that prevent them from being here in person, whether it's due to moving away, whether it's due to being homebound. But still others haven't returned because of the hurt that they've suffered over the past two years, because of the grief they've experienced, because of the anger that they still carry. Sometimes, friends, we are the fig tree in Jesus' parable. 
but other times we are the gardener. Sometimes we are called to go the extra mile for the people who need us to build bridges of faith. Nobody is too far gone for repentance, for a change of behavior from themselves or from their community to bear fruit in their lives. I want you to notice that Jesus' parable doesn't have a neat, tidy ending. There's no conclusion. The parable is sort of mid-action and then the curtain drops. It's over. We don't know whether the owner chops down the fig tree. We don't know whether the fig tree bears fruit. The ending is ours to write. How are we going to respond? How can we as gardeners tend to the places of barrenness in our lives and in our communities? May we be a people who isn't afraid of the dirty, smelly work of mercy. May we be a people who search for those who are absent. And may we be a people that builds bridges of faith, trusting that nobody has gone so far that repentance won't bear fruit. May it be so. Amen.